Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, Pete Wadgen here. So this is probably our most ambitious podcast series yet. Why? Because everyone in investing has an opinion and an interpretation of Warren Buffett and his investment style. If you Google Uncle Warren, you'll get 72 million results and there's no doubt that he's the king of investing. What we want to do is determine if we can distill Buffett's 80-odd years of investing into a podcast mini-series that can help you as an investor. So we'll list a few Buffettisms and we'll dissect each one in a little detail to try and extract the wisdom, what lessons can we learn, which are the important lessons. And what we can see is that many of them are on the same topics and expresses the same point in different ways. And we'll finish this series with the ultimate question, is Warren Buffett unique and can we all be a little bit more like Buffett? So join us as we discuss the Buffett philosophy, his principles of investing and what we can learn and whether we can replicate his style to build your wealth. And after all, As Buffett himself said, your best investment is in yourself and there's nothing that compares to it. So join Steve Moriarty and myself as we dissect a few Buffettisms and see what we can glean from the master. Cheers. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. G'day, Steve. How's things? Good, Pete. Good, Pete. How are you? I'm good. We were just having a chuckle before we came on about uh, my renovation escapades, but Steve was looking at me with a blank stare. So uh, let's 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 move on. Stops. (laughs) So cracking on with a a talk about equities instead. So uh, quite an ambitious mini series we're undertaking here. Um, So we'll take our time to go through the content because this is a learning exercise for me as much as anything else, because I want to get something out of this in terms of how we can become better investors by learning from the great man, Warren Buffett. So I think we've referenced Warren in probably every other podcast episode we've ever done. So it followed logically that maybe we should do a mini series on what we can learn from Buffett. So today, Steve, rule number one, don't lose money. Don't lose money. And rule number two, don't forget rule number one. You have to start every Buffett with, you know, a Buffettism. And of course, it's got to be rule number one, hasn't it? Yes, yeah, so I think um, we'll use a few of the uh, the folksy quotes as we go through as um, lampposts or reference points to see what we can learn from the great man. So I was reading the investor letter the other day and always interests me in the past, uh, well, I guess really since um, the past decade, the S&P 500 in the States has been booming and uh, the usual talk about Warren having lost his touch, but he always takes great pleasure in including in the, the investor letter the, the compounded annual gain since 1965 of 20% for Berkshire Hathaway as compared to 10% for US stocks, which may not sound a lot, but if you compound that over uh, the period from 1964 
that equates to a 2.8 million percent return or overall gain, I should say, for Berkshire as compared to 23,000 uh, for US stocks. So it's one hell of a difference over time. Uh, so I guess, Steve, ultimately that that is the point of what we're trying to discuss today. It's pretty well unarguable that Buffett is probably the best investor that most people have seen. There are people who have got a better performance over a shorter period of time. You know, the old fella's 90 now, and he talks about, if you read the snowball, he kicked off when he was about six or something. So (laughs) money-hungry little bugger. But, you know, like you think 85 years, 84, 85 years of investing, I mean, there'd be basically nothing that you wouldn't have seen. I mean, he's he's seen, you know, like wars, famines, you know, recessions, all sorts of things. So we sort of thought it would be a good idea if we could have a, you know, a race through his career and um, see if there was anything that really stood out. And I think this one really stands out because it's the primary one that we use and we talk about when we talk to our clients about risk, which is, you know, like everybody when they invest money, whether it's property or stocks or art, you seldom actually say to yourself, do you wonder how I could lose money in this? You always say that you always basically automatically go, oh, geez, you know, I wonder how much I'm going to make. Yes. I mean, well, there's your first takeaway, I guess, is that long term approach. If you look at the uh, the returns um, that, that Buffett has achieved, I mean, he's had his bad years just like everyone else has 2008, 2011. Uh, even struggled a bit, I think, in 2015. But it's the the long term approach of not losing money and focusing on yeah, just quality, I suppose. And uh, I, I guess what we talk about as being a, a Kelly style investor looking to buy stuff when it's cheap. I think um, just uh, we, we were just chuckling before we started there, Steve, about uh, my UK property investing and over the years. And uh, I, I was actually just looking back as um, obviously I'm a bit younger than Warren, who's 90, but trying to get a few key takeaways in terms of the, the stuff that we've done over the years. And um, I think we've, we've talked previously about buy and hold versus buy and sell. And um, as you know, my wife Heather's a bit older than me. Her first uh, investment or property that she bought was a house in Cambridge in the UK. Just looking back at a, a chart of UK house prices, they absolutely went bananas from about 1996 to 2007. Then they did absolutely nothing from 2007, I suppose, to 2011 or so. And then they've had another boom cycle over the past 10 years. Uh, So we haven't sort of done the buy and sell thing there. But there's a couple of uh, things that spring to mind. One is leverage. So leverage can be quite powerful when you're young. But as Buffett will always instruct people, it's it's dangerous to use leverage um, to risk accelerating returns when you don't need to. Uh, the other thing, though, is because that property was bought at such a cheap point in the cycle, it's now throwing off a few thousand dollars of rent monthly. So is you know whether or not we ever choose to sell it to lock in the capital gain doesn't really matter because it was bought so cheap. So that's a good example of buying at the low point in, in the cycle. But as I've mentioned before, um, Heather and I also have some index funds bought around the peak of the tech bubble. Um, and I guess from a capital gain point of view, they've, they've actually gone backwards for the FTSE. So th- that is the polar opposite of paying too much. And yeah, sure, the dividends have kind of continued, but it's been a pretty poor investment over 20 years. The, there's a few things, the really critical things, and we'll probably finalise this whole series with 
um, a discussion about, you know, can you be like Warren Buffett? But you mentioned the points there about the Kelly criterion and, you know, Buffett is really a Kelly-type investor. And what people don't understand about that is Buffett will have periods of underperformance because that's what's expected of a Kelly investor. So, you know, it's no, I'm, I'm not surprised that Buffett underperforms. Secondly, he underperforms in raging bull markets. But where Buffett makes his money is getting to this point of, you know, where he talks about the permanent loss of capital. Buffett has always said, I'm not interested in the S&P, I don't benchmark, because when he uses Kelly or, the what you know, the capital growth theory, what he's doing is looking to build wealth. So he doesn't benchmark himself against the S&P. It's why he always uses book value. You know, did book value increase? That's what it's all about, and I keep increasing it. And so what he says is that, you know, he can underperform for 10 years, but it's not a permanent loss of capital. And the difference, I think, is a lot of people outperform in a bull market but then get absolutely obliterated in the large drawdowns. And so from that perspective, he continues to win over the longer term because he keeps this sort of obsessive focus about not losing money. It's one of those, it's a sort of counterintuitive point, but it, it's what he just continues to focus on. And it's, it's part of Kelly about the survival you know, like the first rule is don't lose money because that way, if it's a permanent loss, you've got to work, you know, two, three, four times as hard to get it back again. Yeah, so when we're talking about rule number one, don't lose money, I guess that's it, isn't it? If you lose 20%, you have to make um, 25% to break even again. I think it's it's not meant to be taken literally because, um, I mean, Buffett himself uh, in the UK theme, in fact, he, he bought, an investment in Tesco, which the business changed. There was accounting fraud and he sold at a loss. So he's not saying you'll never lose money, but I think his, his focus is very much on avoiding the permanent loss of capital. Uh, he's not talking about temporary fluctuations because just like everybody else in 2008, Berkshire saw its share price down and um, probably 30% in that calendar year. But, you know, that might have a bit of temporary 20 billion fluctuation in his personal wealth, but it's not a permanent loss of capital. So I guess eliminating the wipeouts and avoiding businesses with high debts and not using stupid leverage, those would all be key aspects of really what he's talking about with rule number one. So if the business change um, changes like IBM or more recently sold some airlines because of the, the change in outlook, he's not averse to selling, but the focus is definitely on avoiding permanent loss of capital, not so much focusing on temporary fluctuations in the market. Buffett doesn't pay attention to the market fluctuations. If he sells, he basically sells on the on the, the consideration that the economics of the business has changed. And so what he originally, his original thesis is wrong. And so he says, right, it's had time to play out. And so he, he actually says, it's time to sell and take the pain. That's part of his underlying philosophy. And, you know, another Buffettism is that, you know, our favourite holding period is forever. And a lot of people, I think, get that mixed up, mixed up because he's not saying he's going to hold forever. What he's saying is if I can compound 
money at a high rate, well, you want to hold it forever because, you know, it's just going to continue to make more and more money. So that's a really, really important part. And that just a little bit ties back to the other one, which is, you know, he talks about, and you mentioned this one a fair bit, you know, the Buffett punch card. Oh, you've got 20, you know, you've got 20 tickets. And what he's saying is if you think about it where you've only got 20 opportunities to invest, you'd be a lot more selective rather than just, you know, like as normally happens, dollar cost average into the market. So he's he's in that framework that is always about risk and always about losing money. You start to get these other buffetisms that spin off it, you know, like the couple that we just mentioned. And the other one it talks about, um, you know, oh, well, if you don't want to hold it for 10 years and you won't hold it for 10 minutes and that sort of stuff. So it's, it's always driven back to what's the opportunity or what's the, uh, the probability that I can lose my money. Right. So obviously a focus on trying to buy great businesses, focus on quality, obviously a big amount of research in Buffett, what he calls his circle of competence. But obviously he's looking at businesses there with essentially no chance of going bust. So they would avoid high debt. It's interesting yeah. looking at the investor letter. I've just got it in front of me. Massive holding in Amex. I think about nineteen uh, percent of Amex. So he started buying that in nineteen ninety three. So you talk about a a long term uh, holding period. Um, but I think in that instance, he bought cheap. There was a big focus on affluent consumers, especially in America. So if you buy something cheap enough, then the earnings yield is attractive enough you can hold those types of investments for a very long time uh, probably most famously coca-cola so uh, i think he owns nine percent of coca-cola and huge investment back in 1988 and just look at the uh, the uh, uh, just looking at the book value now or the market value of coca-cola it's uh yes yeah, 22 billion there so it's uh, some pretty some pretty big uh, long-term returns uh, and i think as well uh, another business that he held for more than held for more than twenty five years, Wells Fargo. And I think back in nineteen eighty nine, if I if I've uh, read the investor letters correctly, I, I don't think he was that big on banks back then. But it was just a big opportunity. And sure, uh, Wells Fargo has had some reputational issues in recent years, but he bought it so cheap that it doesn't really impact Buffett so much. So I'm just trying to tie this back to our type of investing, Steve, and the the approach that we use. Uh, so I guess if you're looking at individual companies, certainly one example that you got me onto uh, is you start with a cheap country. So you're looking at Russia in 2016. You also then look at the cheap sectors. Uh, so in that case, um, commodities was good value, a big systemic company that fulfills those criteria. So Gazprom, which I think has gone from, I guess, $4 to $6 over that time. I think I got in at about 5 but it's interesting to look at how the dividends have gone. You know, 2016, eight rubles per share, same in 2017, but now 17 rubles and 15 rubles per share. So it's, um, you bought that when it was so cheap that to a large degree, the capital gain doesn't really matter. And in fact, I think um, last year or a year ago, uh, the company said it would be increasing its dividend payments to at least 50% of net profit within three years. So that that is what we would call a well three type investment. You bought it so cheap and the dividend yield, I think even now it's about 8%. So 
So to a large degree, it doesn't really matter what happens with a capital gain uh, because the income that that's going to be throwing off for um, years, decades to come, these are big systemic companies, effectively government-backed. Uh, so I guess that's, that's an example of a Buffett-style investment, Steve. The thing that always stuck with me about Warren Buffett was he says, but, you know, he looks for stocks with bond-like qualities. And what he means is, you know, bonds give you security in the sense of they're, they're you know, quote, risk-free. They're not totally risk-free, but the risk is minimal, particularly if you hold to the, you know, you hold for the duration of the, so if you buy a 10-year bond, you hold it for 10 years and it's paying 5%, you know what you're going to get. Buffett looks at that and says, I want bond-like qualities, which is basically, you know, zero risk. The extension of that is, again, which we'll probably talk about later on in a, in a few more weeks, is the stuff about competitive advantages and, you know, moats and stuff. And so when I, when I sort of looked at Gazprom, it was just one of those things that, and this is not a recommendation to rush out and buy Gazprom, by the way, um, but it was just one of those things that I sort of looked at and couldn't find a lot of ways to lose my money. And really the only way I sort of thought that I could would be if Putin um, decided to nationalise it. Um, and the reality is they already own about 51%, which gives them ownership, you know, control, which for Putin is important. And when you looked at the, the economics of it, it, it was just, it just looked to me to be sort of, you know, spewing cash flow. And like you said, the dividends, and it just became sort of too cheap to ignore in, a, in that sense, really. Yeah, so one of the uh, the challenges there is you, you sort of uh, mentioned a competitive advantage and, and durable advantages and moats. That, so you, you want businesses that are obviously going to be around for a very long time. I guess, though, the economy has become somewhat more dynamic these days. And in some industries, there's a bit more of a winner-takes-all type of dynamic. And so I guess um, this is one place where like it might be more difficult for mere mortals like us to be um, essentially a, a Buffett-style investor because although, although clearly Buffett has done well, but there's a couple of things. One, he's 90, so he's been around for a very long time, but also um, he's clearly invested through a period where the US has become globally dominant, uh, which is a massive tailwind behind his his approach. So one of the things that we use is the CAPE ratio. I think we talk about this on most episodes and so we're looking at uh, sectors and countries that are cheap because that is, I guess, an edge that we can use. Now, I guess one of the things is, uh, for me as an individual investor, I think one of the things I talked about on the blog was um, buying some shares in Occidental um, over the past year or two. And I started buying it about $30. And I think I bought it all the way down to about 8 or $9.00. Now, I think it's, it's now back in the 30s, so happy days. But I can tell you that was a deeply uncomfortable experience for me because I just, <laughs> I think I think ultimately I just don't have the same level of confidence about analysing a business. So I suppose this is where you might talk about the risk hierarchy and if analysing a company is not for you. And I think that experience showed for me it's pretty tough. I think um, an ETF that owns a whole sector can be a more comfortable way for mere mortals to go you um you might be more jeffrey boycott than i thought mate eh? 
<laughs> look, uh, it's it's funny how hindsight bias kicks in because I look at it now and say, oh, of course, it was always going to come back. O- oil's uh, oil's doing just fine, but it, it, I wasn't feeling quite so clever a few months ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, funny because the, you know, here we go. Buffett is number four for the episode. Wait for the fat pitch. Um, you know, and but and he also said number five coming up when it's raining opportunities, reach for a bucket, not a thimble. Um, but I agree with you, Pete. You you do look at it, you know, and go because when you buy something that's cheap, you sort of automatically think, oh well, I'm probably close to the bottom. And I will tell you that I did exactly the same thing with Gazprom. You know, I started buying at eight and ended up buying at about finishing at about four. But at eight, it was on a PE of four, and I sort of looked at it and went, oh my god, this is a no-brainer. And then it just kept going further and further down. But you know, I sort of had the fortitude to continue buying. But, yeah, what I think the advantage is for folks who say and what we sort of teach folks, which is saying, look, you know, investing in individual companies is very hard. Warren Buffett's had a big tailwind. He's born in America. Um, You know, he's from a middle-class family. He invested, as you said, when America rose rose to global dominance. He's had a time to pick companies that had moats that were durable. And what I mean was, you know, were, were lasting for a long time. And so why the reason why we always talk about Kate generally is because when you look at Buffett and he says don't lose money, the best thing you can do is then invoke Howard Marks and say, well, if I invest when the market's low, I'll get it, you know, I'll probably get a good tailwind. And so the the next best thing to being, you know, not losing money if you don't really want to pick individual companies but you think, you know, you want to be like Warren Buffett, then the argument is we'll buy in the cheap countries and the cheap sectors like we sort of talk to folks about with, you know, CAPE. That will give you your sort of, you know, what does Buffett say, you know, stocks with bond-like qualities. If you buy an index, you, you seldom put your head on the pillow at night and go, geez, I hope, you know, I wake up tomorrow when, you know, the UK index is still there. Whereas a single company, as you probably know, and I can tell you as I've had a few times, go, you know, you can wake up and have one happened to me about two weeks ago where it went down 22%, you know, when it opened up. And it, you sort of go, oh, gee, actually that wasn't according to the plan. That's what happens with companies. And what we sort of say is, but if you actually use the cape, you can generally get just as good a returns, if not better returns, for lower risk. And that's the really important part, you know, the lower risk. Because we know, like you were saying, the volatility freaks you out. Even if it's getting cheaper, you're still going to yourself, oh, geez, you know, it just doesn't feel right. It just You just think to the point with a company, well, geez, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, I think in my experience, uh in the last year with with uh, with oil is that I think if it gets to the point where you're checking the share price um, daily, then you, you probably some something has gone wrong in your investment approach there, and you you don't have the level of confidence that you should. And an expert like Buffett would clearly be looking at the fundamentals of the business rather than focusing on the day to day fluctuations yeah. in the market. So I think you know all's well that ends well, but I think I've learned something there about my tolerance for volatility in in an individual company. Uh, Certainly, I think I need to sort of manage the allocation in in instances like that because it 
there's no there is no sort of point for somebody at my stage in life taking risks that I'm not comfortable with. So on the interesting you mentioned the market timing point there because I think people often say, well, Buffett's not a market timer. And that that might be sort of true in terms of you know uh, the macro timing the market. But actually, if you look at most of his purchases, they are generally when either the market is cheap or the sector is cheap. So recently, uh, oil we mentioned, commodities, also some telcos, the sectors have been out of favour. And that's where he looks rather than the expensive um, tech side of the business. I think uh, one point just worth exploring, one of the reasons that Buffett has been so successful in compounding is that he's always had money to invest. Now, he has um, Gecko and an insurance float. Uh, For most of us as individuals, we either have business income or uh, wages income. So um, how important is having some dry powder and ability to invest in those big opportunities when they do come around? So when it's uh, raining, you can put out a bucket, not a thimble. It's a really, really critical bit, Pete, that a lot of people don't understand um, and I think I might have even talked about this a few weeks ago because it's just it, it again is counterintuitive oh well if I've got this cash sitting around then I should have it doing something Buffett has said the minimum he the minimum he will only ever get down to is so I think 20 billion um, and the reason why is again because first of all he understands that if you've got cash you can take advantage of the opportunity right and so if you, if you come along, and again, we talk about the earnings yield and saying if, it's, if you can compound something at 10 or 11% and it's a pretty good thing, as in, you know, a, an Apple or a Coca-Cola or a, an Amex and that sort of thing, why not, you know, reach for the bucket? Because it's going to, if it comes off, it's going to be a sensational. Um, and he's got, he's got a few of those to his name. The genius of Buffett, I think, in terms of the the idea of cash is he, you know, the, the idea is don't, you know, permanent loss of capital. Okay, how, how would I avoid permanently losing capital? Okay, let's get a permanent inflow of capital. And that's what he does with Geico and the insurance stuff because what it does is he takes that float, you know, that, that money that you pay your insurance company and what he realises is, yeah, he's going to have to pay out some of it at some stage, but in the interim, if he can compound that money at 20%, I mean, it, and that's what's happened. You know, the you think about it, Pete, the, the easiest rule in investing is don't lose money is to say, all right, well, either you say to yourself, I'll put a tiny bit in every week so I never actually blow up and lose a lot, or you say, I'll just continue to have a source of supply. And, and that's what I explain to a lot of people about superannuation. You know, like it's really different if you said to people, look, if you start the year and the market loses money, well, we just take all your money away, right? The only thing that saves people is the dollar cost averaging of super because generally they don't sell a lot of stocks when they're overpriced and nor do they buy in, uh, you know, bucket sizes when the when the market's undervalued. And so you end up with this sort of average return. The key is always having, you know, a, a stream of cash or a pot of cash that you can use when the market um, when the market gives you the opportunities. 
So uh, it's, it's actually just really clear just looking at this investor letter. And it, I suppose that's one of Buffett's uh, great pieces of genius, really, is, um, is his ability to communicate. Yes, I think clearly making sure that um, Berkshire is always around, it can, it can survive effectively any shock. So that is obviously one of the most important things. But it's, it's actually just looking at um, the returns and results over time and the true aspects of compounding. Yes, being around for a very long time has clearly helped. But actually, if you look at the difference in Buffett's results, it's, it's largely about um, the earnings yield. So and as we've seen, if you buy the top of the market, it doesn't even matter if you hold for 20 years, you just won't do that well. Yeah. Whereas if you can buy and invest when the earnings yield is high, then the results can be stupendous over time. So yes, rule number one, don't lose money, but also think starting points. And that's where the CAPE ratio is a powerful starting point in terms of helping to identify uh, when the earnings yield is attractive. And also think about market cycles and how you can compound more quickly um, if you buy cheap. And I think probably the hardest one of all is patience. I think it's very difficult when people around you are talking about you know, multiplying their money in speculative bets and so on, that's pretty hard as you get older when you've got uh, more to lose, essentially. And it's quite difficult to be patient and wait for those good opportunities when other people appear to be uh, getting rich in adverted commerce. But I guess that's probably the biggest lesson of all from Buffett is the patience to wait for those big opportunities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, 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 it gets back to that, you know, rule number one. And the, how do you do that? Well, you just be patient and you you wait for the fat pitch, you know, and as we said, and then, you you know, you swing for the rafters. That's the really important point that we talk about with, with Cape and market cycles. You know, we know market cycles. You know, we know they go through a bull market. We know they go through bear markets. And the argument is, or the argument of, oh, you know, you can't tell is garbage. I mean, you've only got to look at, you know, you've only got to look at the, the market cycles and the long-term map with a CAPE ratio. And again, what we say to people is you never want to, you don't want to buy this argument that says, oh, you can't pick the top. And it's like, I don't need to pick the top because I'm not picking the top for the capital gain. What I'm looking at is the complete earnings yield. So it's the dividend I'm being paid and the capital gain. And like you said before, if you've got a stream of cash flow and you've got an earnings yield of 11% from your starting value, well, that becomes like, as we've said, a well three investment. So you can withstand a very big drawdown, right? Because you're still compounding at a really great rate over the long term. So therefore you can hold forever. But to get those opportunities, you've got to wait or, as we sort of say to people, what you want to do is look to the markets like we look to in Russia or, you know, Brexit, um, American financials, the GFC, you know, when the bull market, this bull market, American bull market took off, you know, they all start when the valuations are low. And so what you have to do is be patient. I think we, you and I talk about this often, Pete. It's an absolute bugger of a thing because... When you say to somebody, I'll oh, just be patient, it, you sort of go, okay, well, now what do I do? Well, you do nothing. And it's like, well, so what? I just sit here and do nothing. You've actually got to do something. And the only way I've found that mastering patience is basically using the logical part of my brain to say, 
Steve, you know the opportunity is going to come along. Okay, well, just wait for the opportunity and when you get it, that's when you'll do well with your money. And indeed, that's how it's worked out. So now for me, patience is, you know, a, a lot easier because I just keep going back to that principle. Oh, I, you know, I'll wait for the fat pitch. Why? Because I don't want to lose money. All the Buffettisms we've mentioned in the last 30 minutes. Yeah, so where we're working to on this mini-series is, um, I suppose, the ultimate question, is Buffett a unique individual and, you know, can we, well, what can we learn from from Uncle Warren and can we be a bit more like him? Uh, so that's what we'll, we'll work to over the course of this series and the Buffett philosophy. So as the great man said, your best investment is yourself. So I think on that note, I might clock off and head to the beach, Steve, uh, albeit it's about 10 degrees, not the uh, the 29 that you'd have in Brisbane. Beautiful, beautiful. Yes, practice your, <laughs> practice your Jeffrey Boycott defence, mate. You'll, um, you'll end up making a century, you know, one test match. <laughs> I'm never going to live that analogy down, am I? So uh, thanks for joining today and we'll we'll see you next week for the next uh, part in this Buffy mini-series. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.